So we started Revelation chapter 20 last week, and we were looking at the thousand-year reign of Christ. And we just read the first few verses of that chapter, and then we bounced back into the Old Testament. And we bounced back into the Old Testament because the Old Testament gives us the description of the thousand-year reign of Christ. When John wrote this, there was no need to write the description in Revelation because the people who were reading it had a very clear picture of what it would be like. Now, they may not have been able to separate the thousand-year reign of Christ from the new heaven and the new earth, but they were keying on the idea of the new kingdom. Remember, the disciples were waiting for Jesus to turn the corner and start the revolution. They would ask questions like, is now the time? Is, is now when the kingdom is going to be ushered in? They were waiting for Jesus to do Messiah-like things that they interpreted from the Old Testament. They were waiting for the lion to lay down with the lamb. They were waiting for Jesus to rule from a throne in Jerusalem. They were waiting for these things, thinking they were going to come immediately after the Messiah arrived. But Jesus, he knew the real plan, and there was some distance between there. So, so they knew what to look for, and they knew what to expect. So John didn't spend any time there, but we had to go back and discover that, because we often don't get a lot from some of those Old Testament prophets because we don't spend a lot of time there. So we went through a lot of that last week. So I want to do a little review. We'll start in the notes, a little review of what we talked about last week. Some very surprising things that will take place during the thousand-year reign of Christ. And it's interesting because I read this and I keep saying to myself, wow, that'll be cool, I can't wait. And then I remind myself, you won't be there. So it's going to be really cool for the people who are there, and it's kind of fitting because the people who will inhabit the thousand-year reign of Christ are the believers who endured the tribulation. So the ones who endure the worst seven years on earth will then be rewarded by getting to live and, and populate the thousand-year reign of Christ. And it will be something to behold, and so let's just go to our notes and let's remind ourselves a few things. Number one, Satan is locked away in the abyss for the entire 1,000 years. Satan is a, is a liar, he's a thief, he's a deceiver, he's a tempter, he's the, the orchestrator of what the Bible calls the world and worldly philosophies and empty philosophy based on human tradition, a lot of phrases like that found in Scripture. He is locked up for the entire 1,000 years, so for 1,000 years we are missing Satan and the demons. Most likely his demons are locked away with him. Therefore, there is no evil deception. There is no evil deception present during the millennial kingdom. There is no tempter, no accuser, no developer of false doctrine. Now that doesn't mean that there is no evil. And we have to remember that. Because every person coming into the millennial kingdom who has, has lived through the tribulation has a sin nature. And every child that they bear will be born with a sin nature. And every child will be born needing to be saved. So for a moment in time, everyone on earth will be saved, but that will be a short period of time because children will be born and they will grow up and they will need to be saved as well. But at least Satan won't be there. Satan will not be tempting. He will not be accusing some of the things he does now. Number two, those who died as believers during the tribulation are resurrected at this point 
to serve as the government officials and as priests under Jesus the King. So if you died during the tribulation, you have an early resurrection. We will still be in paradise awaiting to join the new heaven and the new earth. But those people who died during the tribulation, they're resurrected. They're given their, their heavenly bodies. In, in effect, they're uh, a perfect human being, and they are the ones who will rule with Christ. That's part of their reward. Therefore, all laws will be just. All government programs and agencies will be fair, honest, and effective. It'll be very different than today. The earth will be very, very different. And right now, very, very different. Don't just think I stuttered there. It's going to be so different. It's very, very different. How will it be different? Well, A, the earth will be topographically uniform. Remember the mountains fall and the valleys rise? The, the islands disappear? So it will be without large mountains or valleys. The earth will be mainly flat. Not a flat earth, but not a lot of mountains. Uh, there will be mountains like Cayenne Mountains, but no mountains like Mount Rainier Mountains. Because God's going to push down the land and, and everything's going to change. Think all the way through this description of a restoration process taking place where God is restoring the earth to an Eden-like situation before the flood. B, the islands will be underwater, and there may very well be only one ocean and one landmass. That's a little bit of speculation, but it seems like that's what's indicated. Be one massive continent with ocean around it. And, of course, fresh water in it. Um, C, the climate will be pleasant, productive, and nourishing, like in a greenhouse. You can grow your crops year-round in a greenhouse. That'll be the effect. This will help produce longer life for both humans and animals and plants. So we'll, we'll live in a, a world that feels different and looks different. The seasons will be different. D, Israel and Jerusalem will be the capital of Jesus' kingdom, flourishing in every way, and will be a blessing to the entire world. And I put in parentheses exactly as prophesied, because that's what was promised to them over and over and over and over again. Eventually this will happen. God said, if you obey me and follow me and serve me, it will happen sooner. If you don't, then we'll have to take corrective measures. But one day, I will rule from a throne in Jerusalem, and you will be my servants, and you will be a blessing to the world, basically taking the message of Christ to the world. E, the entire world will participate as nations in the worship of Jesus as Lord. It says all the defeated nations of the world, all the, the, the people who survived, which are believers, still belong to nations and still live in certain areas of the world. As they repopulate, yearly they will bring offerings to God in Jerusalem and they will offer them up to Jesus and worship him there. F, people will live into the multiple hundreds of years before they die. Multiple hundreds of years before they die. I said anyone who dies at 100 will be considered a child. The animals will cohabitate on earth peacefully, perhaps even reverting back to a time when they were all vegetarians. Again, pre-flood conditions. And if you want to read an expanded text that talks about that, read Isaiah 11, 6 through 8. It's a long paragraph that talks about all the, all the things about the animals. It's really cool. Additionally, so beyond what we talked about last week, Isaiah 2.4 tells us there will be no more wars, so we don't have to have military. We don't have to have weapons defense spending. There will be no more wars, no conflicts like that. 
uh, be, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Like everyone all over the earth will know who God is. Everyone all over the earth will know who Jesus is. Everyone all over the earth will know the gospel. Everyone all over the earth will know right from wrong. They'll know what righteousness looks like. They, they, can, they can have a conversation with Jesus if they travel to Jerusalem. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. See, justice and righteousness, righteousness will be the law of the land. Justice and righteousness will be the normal thing. It, it, the news will actually, if they report something bad in the news, it will actually be news. It won't be commonplace. Because the, the, the right way to do things will be the normal way to do things. That's how God's going to set it up. And D, Israel will live in safety and security. Something they've never had the entire time they've been a nation. Israel will live in safety and security. I have a couple more things that I thought of uh, as, as I was preparing this morning, and I'll throw these out at you. They're, they're not super relevant, and I have no, no basis to say this is actually going to happen, but these are things that might happen. And, and I would kind of think it's logical that they would. You know, we have B.C. and A.D. right now. That's how we counted our years before Christ and after his death. And then what are they going to count the years as a millennium? We'll be saying, hey, in the year 13, K.J., in the year 13 of King Jesus, or the year 13 of the millennial kingdom, M.K., or E.K., the earthly kingdom, are we going to start overcounting? Because we kind of do that historically. You know, back in the day when a king took over, that nation's calendar started over at zero. And you counted his years of reigning. And if he was powerful and successful, it, it carried on. If he was a loser and without, they revert back. So when King Jesus takes over and the whole world has been changed, maybe they'll be talking about B.C. and A.D. and now kingdom years. Something like that. I also wonder, this is 100% speculation, I, have, I probably couldn't even find anyone that thought this thought. But, you know, we have the Old Testament where we look back at the historical narrative of God. And we have the New Testament where we look at the historical narrative of Jesus. You know, what if there's a new New Testament for the Millennial Kingdom? Because you notice we get nothing. We don't know how they're going to operate. We don't, know, we don't know anything about them. Maybe there's a new New Testament where they study what we call the Old Testament, and then they study what we call the New Testament, and then God gives them more writings to guide them because humanity has never lived in a world under these conditions. They've never lived with Jesus Christ sitting on the throne. They've never lived with millions of perfect people in, in their eternal bodies being the government. And, and so maybe, maybe we get a, another testament that tells their future history. That tells them these are the events that will take place at the end of the thousand years. When Satan is released, he will do this. And maybe there's more information than we have. Just speculation, but interesting things to think about. We don't know much about what, the, what will be going on during those thousand years. Number four, those entering the millennial kingdom will be saved and will be committed to God. Okay, I've already said that, and I've already said this too, but this is, but their children will still have a sin nature, and therefore must still be saved themselves, just like everyone else. The need for salvation does not go away. The, the need to repent of your sin, because sinners will be born, and sinners will sin, 
and repentance will be required, and, and they will need to be saved just like we do. They will have a distinct advantage because Jesus will be present on the earth, reigning from a throne in Jerusalem and all the other things I mentioned. So it'll, it should be easier for them. And then number five, this will be the case for a thousand years. This utopia will be there for a thousand years. However, people will sin, have disputes, need correction, and some will never become true believers. That's a hard thing to fathom. How can you live in this world where the animal kingdom has changed, the plant kingdom has changed, the entire world is under one government, Jesus is sitting on a throne, you can have a face-to-face -face conversation with the Son of God. The, the rules are all fair. Everything's just. The, the, none, of the, none of the horrible, rotten things are present, at least in the beginning. And yet people will still not follow Christ. They'll not choose Christ. How is that possible? But it will be. And that's kind of where we ended last time. So now we're going to finish this section. So Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. We'll read 7, 8, 9, and 10. It says, when the thousand years are over, Satan was released, or Satan will be released from his prison and go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they will be like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So now we're at the end of the thousand years, and these are the things that will happen. I want to just take it phrase by phrase. There's four verses. There's five phrases I want to pull out here. It's in your notes. Number one, when the thousand years were over, Satan will be released from the prison to deceive the nations. So after a thousand years, not the, not the end of the thousand years, but after a thousand years, we're going to read it just like it's written, after a thousand years of near perfect living conditions, near perfect living conditions, living to be into the hundreds, maybe, maybe living almost to be a thousand, with the fruit that comes off the tree monthly, with the, the leaves that don't fall off the trees, with the animals not fighting one another, when you can literally have a, a, a pet tiger if you want. Read that description in Isaiah. Near perfect living conditions, Satan will be released. And Satan will do what he's always done. Lie. Lie. And lie. He's just going to start lying again. That's what he's always done. It's always worked for him. That's always been his best game. I'm going to lie. I'm going to tell lies about God. I'm going to tell lies about people. I'm going to tell lies about myself. I'm going to tell lies that make you doubt God. I'm just going to lie. I'm going to lie. And I'm going to lie. And it says he goes out to the four corners of the earth. Number two. Four corners, four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog. The four corners of the earth is just a phrase that means everywhere. He's gonna, his message is going to go everywhere. There's not, there's not a nation. There's not a people group. There's not a land mass. There's nowhere that won't hear of his deception. There's nowhere that won't hear the lies that he's spreading. And then it says Gog and Magog. And, and what in the world is that? Well, if you go back to Ezekiel 38, and you read, it, you read from Ezekiel, 
Magog was a region that they well knew, and the leader of that region was Gog. And so we transferred that forward, and we say the, the, that region, still known as Magog to this author, and the leader of that region would be known as Gog. Well, that region today is Russia. And, and that should make you think about all those movies you watched and all those books you read about the apocalypse and about the end times and all the battles that took place and all the conspiracy and everything. And, and all the preachers that talked about Russia, the evil Russia, they're the ones that are going to bring about the tribulation. Well, no, we are just now hearing about them. And this is at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. We have to take it in, in sequence. We have to observe the chronology. This is after the thousand-year reign of Christ. After 1,000 years, the people from Russia, and it's not like the people from Russia, but it's everybody on the earth. Okay, it says they'll, they'll, they'll come from all over the earth, but their leadership will come from Russia. Now, does that mean we should sus suspect the Russians now? Well, not because of this. We should suspect the Russians now, but not because of this. This is long past us. This has nothing to do with us, except it's knowledge that we have. So from that region of Russia, north of Israel, they will gather, they'll be under their leadership, they'll attack. Makes sense. Satan always has somebody, some human being that he's working through, some group that he's working through. That's who he'll work through at this time. So from the four corners of the earth, Satan will gather an army together, number three. In number, they were like the sand of the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people. So, A, they surrounded Jerusalem in order to defeat God and take over his kingdom. We hear that and we think, how stupid does that sound? But Satan is a liar and a deceiver, and he's always been really good at it, and he will convince a whole lot of people who have not actually given their life to Christ and received forgiveness for their sins, he'll convince a whole lot of people that this time they can beat God. It's been a thousand years, so all the stories of, of the Battle of Armageddon and, tribu and tribulation times, those are ancient myths. Those are stories that God told to, to keep you in line. Same kind of stuff we're hearing now about Bible days. Satan will tell his lies. Satan will deceive. He'll gather all these people. He'll convince Gog and the people of Magog, and he'll convince them that we should attack now. And they will attack Israel because they think they can beat God. Because Jesus is on the throne in Jerusalem, that's where they go. They're going to encircle the camp of Jerusalem. And it says that the, the number of, of, like the sand of the seashore, just means their numbers were uncountable. And it's going to be in the millions, at least. And, and that should set you back a little bit. How is it possible that millions of people who have lived in this near-perfect earth cannot believe in God? And the answer is because they're human. We experience the same thing today. Number four, it says, But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. You notice how this is just boom, boom, boom? They gathered, fire came down. It's like, it's like we don't even need to discuss it. We don't need any big story. We don't need how it works. Just, just realize they're going to gather. They think they can beat God. God's going to send fire down. They're going to be devoured. Much like the Battle of Armageddon, where by the spoken word, 
Jesus won the battle, eliminated the enemy. So Satan's army was again defeated without a fight. They gathered together, they didn't even get to fight. And Satan again is left standing all alone. He has no one again. He has no army again. This time, number five, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So A in your notes, the beast and the false prophet have been in hell for a thousand years. That's sort of surprising. Why would the beast and the false prophet be in hell before Satan is in hell? What's the logic there? Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't have God's mind there. I can, I can venture a couple of ideas, but in the end, I'm going to trust God that this is just. So who were the beast and the false prophet? They were the people who bought into Satan's first lie and so bought in that they led the charge against God the first time. So the leaders of the, the army of Armageddon, the leaders of the rebellion who, who, who pledged themselves to, to Satan, they spend a thousand years in hell before Satan even shows up. So God, God's like saying, you guys, you guys deserve more. And that should tell us that, that the punishment in hell will match the crime. Those people who have committed the most uh, evil acts will suffer more in hell. And maybe that makes us feel better. Maybe it doesn't. But the beast and the false prophet have been in hell for a thousand years. Now it's Satan's turn to join them. And God just throws him in. There's no struggle. You know, if Hollywood was making this movie, there'd be a struggle and there'd be a big fight at the end. And at the last second, God would win and overtake Satan. And then he'd wrestle him down there and you'd be thinking, maybe he's going to escape, maybe he's not. And, and God would get him in in the last minute. And we'd go, oh, whew, God won. There's no fight. God just, fire from heaven, eliminates the army. Satan is snatched up, thrown into the lake of fire. Not the abyss. The lake of fire. And then see, I want you to notice, it's eternal. It says, they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Day, day and night, we don't, we don't take that literally, because other parts of the Bible tell us that it's, it's complete darkness in hell. 100% darkness all the time. Day and night, forever and ever, is like us saying 24-7, 365. It's that, it's that all the time, never-ending you know, Starbucks is open 24-7, 365. It's like, it's always open. Doesn't matter when. Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, we're open. Hell is always hell, and it will be that way forever and ever. And so, if you're hoping that in the end, the worst thing that can happen is that you just cease to exist, we're not going to find that to be true. We're not going to find that to be true. Every promise God has made, he has fulfilled. Every warning he has given, he has followed through on. Every promise he has made, he has followed through on. And he says, follow me now. If you don't follow me now and you die, you have had your last chance. And after the judgment, you will join them in hell. Follow me now. Repent of your sins. Ask for forgiveness. And from this time forward, you are on my side, and I will save you from hell. Hell is eternal. If hell wasn't eternal, then heaven can't be eternal. 
Otherwise, it would be unjust. So a couple more questions in your notes. What happened to those who were not in the army but did not believe? That was a question I had. What about, what about the people who didn't believe but weren't in the army that showed up? And what about those believers who lived to the end of the earthly kingdom? What about the people who finished the thousand years and then finished the days of Satan? And at the, when the battle was over, they, was, they were still there. What happened to them? We're not told. We're not told what happened to them. What we are told is Revelation 21.1, which we'll actually talk about next week. But it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So sometime between the end of chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21, everything is destroyed. The, old, the, the earth and the heavens are destroyed. I literally think that means everything in creation is destroyed. The sun, moon, stars, the, the galaxies, the universe, the earth, the people, the plants, the trees, the animals, everything is destroyed. I think it, maybe it collapses upon itself. Maybe the snap of a finger, it's gone. But then God recreates and it's going to be similar, but there's going to be some differences. We just read one. There'll be no, no longer any sea. We'll talk about what that means next week. But God's going to recreate. And all those people, we don't know what exactly happens to them in that process, but the, those who believed will wind up with the believers, and those who did not believe will wind up with the unbelievers. And then they will go to the, the judgments, and those who believe will receive rewards, and those who didn't believe will receive the penalty. So that's what happens to them. And, and, and at that point, that's the end of humanity with a sinful nature. Why does God have to destroy the heavens and the earth? Because they have been tainted by sin. And his forever kingdom will not be tainted by sin. It will be a recreation. And it will be wonderful. What am I supposed to take home from all this? Well, today it's realizations. I want you to realize a few things. Number one, or A in your notes, realize that Satan has been and always will be a liar. He has been and always will be a liar. And there's implications to that. These people who live in a perfect world, as perfect as it has ever been since Adam and Eve sinned, definitely since before the flood, as perfect as a world can ever be, Satan's lies caused millions of people to reject Christ and align themselves with Satan. And it was not a, a wonder-who-you-are kind of thing. It was, I bet you're going to win, I'm going to follow you. It, there, wasn't, there wasn't any ambiguity. Okay? If, if Satan, if his lies can fool those people, they can certainly fool us. And so the application is, be wise. Pay attention. Listen. Compare your, your ideas that you think you have all on your own. The great ideas you come up with, that you think you think you figured it out finally. Compare your ideas and your thoughts with Scripture. Check to see if you've really figured something out. Check to see if, if your new idea is from the Holy Spirit. If it's from the Holy Spirit, it will match Scripture. If it's from Satan or an influence of Satan, if it's based on one of his lies, it won't match Scripture. Satan's lie is, you know what, you don't have to obey the cultural norms of the past. That's old fogey stuff. 
yeah, your grandparents got married and stayed married for life. Well, don't worry about that. You don't even have to worry about picking the right person the first time. Just give it away. If it works, great. If it doesn't, try again. That's Satan. And you know, on a practical, pragmatic level, it kind of makes sense. You know, I might as well try two or three times. I try two or three kinds of ice cream before I pick my favorite. Right? I, I might as well see what kind of person I want to live with. I'll see what kind of person I want to become. I, 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 might as well, I might as well just do what the world tells me to do because it seems to be working out. We read the Bible and it says, it says don't think like the world thinks. Don't follow what the world tells you. Do what I tell you. I have your best interest in mind. I plan to keep you safe. I plan to give you joy. I plan to give you happiness. I plan to walk with you through the difficult times. And even, even if an idea seems to come right out of my own head, I need to realize that Satan is a deceiver. He's really, really good at it. And I might be being deceived. So I'm going to check it with Scripture. When I listen to a pastor on YouTube or a teacher on the radio or I hear a song that seems to mean something to me, it seems to inspire me, uh, uh, somebody on YouTube or Twitter or any, any of the platforms, and I think, man, they really sound like they know what they're talking about. They seem to, they seem to really have insight. You know, Satan loves to tell his lies through people that sound really smart and seem to have a lot of insight and seem to have their life together. And seem is the key word. We'll have to take what they say. And no matter how clever they sounded, or how sure they sounded, or how right they sounded, we compare that to the Word of God. And if their advice, or their logic, or their philosophy does not match the Word of God, it's not true. There's a movement out there, it's not new, but it comes up every once in a while, and the movement basically says that, you know, God is all love. And everyone will eventually get to heaven. If you don't find God now, that's okay, because after you die, a God of love will reintroduce himself to you, and you'll have a chance to go to heaven. And if at that point, if you still don't want to believe, that's okay too, because he'll just let you drift into oblivion and become a nothing, and you'll never have another thought or remember anything about it, so it's all good. So don't get all that excited about Religion and faith and Christianity, now you've got plenty of time. Even if you died, there's always after death. It'll work out. You know why that keeps coming up? Because it sounds really cool. Oh yeah, God is love, isn't he? We sing about God being love. We hear about God being love. It always comes up, God is love. For God so loved the world. So yeah, God is love. You must be right. This is great. I don't have to witness. I, I really don't even have to live right. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to worry about my friends or my family. This is, this is pretty awesome. And, and we think that. And, and people with degrees behind their name write books and they say these things. Rob Bell, for example. And others. Is that what the Bible says? No. It says that those who don't believe on this earth before they die, they go to Hades now, and eventually they stand before God, and he says, depart from me, I don't know you. Enter your reward, which is hell. Go where you wanted to go. You didn't want me, 
Now you don't get me. You're going to go to hell. I'll be in heaven. That's what the Bible teaches. It's all over the place. There's actually more references to hell in the Bible than anything else. More talk about that than love or about heaven. And so Satan's a liar and there's implications to his lies. And he's going to get you to do things you wouldn't normally do. He's going to get you to ignore godly logic and go with your neighbor's logic. And he's really good at it, so beware. Realize it's there. B, realize that God will be fair and just right up to the very end. God, God never gives up his quest. Our choices make a difference. And he responds to our choices. He will be just and he will be fair right up to the very end. Till the moment the last person enters eternity in heaven or the last person enters eternity in hell, the standard will not change. C. Realize that man's heart will always be and always has been deceitful. These people did not have Satan telling his lies until the very end, yet they did not believe. How is that possible? Because we are more than capable of deceiving ourselves. And usually, more than willing to deceive ourselves. So we better pay attention and find out what the truth is. Don't trust our own thoughts. Don't trust our own logic. Go to Scripture. And D, realize that I've always needed and always will need a Savior. I have always needed a Savior. Before I was saved, I needed a Savior. After I saved, I still need the Savior. Realize that I always need the Savior. And that will never change. And everyone we know needs a Savior. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who changed my life. That's who we are, right? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for our time today. Thank you for letting us know about a future that we're not even going to be witnessing firsthand. We might see it from heaven. We might see it from your perspective. But we're, we're off the table right now in this part of the study. But you let us in on it anyway because we learn about you and we see who you are. And, and we, we see you fulfilling promises and we see your justice being fulfilled as well as your love and mercy and grace. Father, help us to realize these things. Help us not to let Satan distract us. Help, him, help us not to let Satan fool us. Father, guard our hearts and our minds. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who has not sat down and had a direct conversation with you and admitted they're a sinner and asked to be forgiven of the sins based on the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive sin, help them to have a conversation with someone today that can lead them through that process. Or guide them yourself, because it doesn't take anybody but you and them. Father, this is the thing that changes our lives. This is the thing that changes our trajectory. This is the thing that makes all the difference in the world. I pray that those who don't know you yet will find you soon, and that we can rejoice in that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.